Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come together this evening to study your word that uh, last week when we had the storms that those who were out traveling, trying to get home, got home safely. And tonight we thank you for the great weather we have. Father, we pray that as we study your word tonight, we'll be refreshed by it. Help us to think through some difficult, complex, controversial issues in light of the clarity of your revelation. We pray that you would make these things clear to us and help us uh, work, work through whatever areas of application we need in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we got started in this subject about six weeks ago. I had a couple of breaks when I went out of town and uh, due to weather, some other, other things. And we're, we're basically coming out of a controversial passage in Hebrews chapter 7, uh, verses 9 and 10. There we read, Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, or literally in a manner of speaking, indicating that the writer of Hebrews is is writing in figurative language. Now, this thing about figurative language is really important because as I've gone through a number of things, uh, trying to handle some of the more difficult phrases and, and passages related to this whole issue of when does life begin, the origin of the soul, the transmission of the soul, one of the things that comes up is this idea of idioms and figures of speech. And it's, it's tough to try to understand some of those concepts because we're so far removed from the spoken language. And it's difficult sometimes to figure out when things are idiomatic because once a phrase becomes idiomatic, then it's, breaking it down syntactically can really lead you in a wrong direction. Because if you were to take, if somebody would tell you to go jump in the lake, If you were to take that and break it down in terms of a wooden literal interpretation and and break it down in terms of its uh, grammar and syntax, it wouldn't lead you to a correct understanding of the meaning of the the phrase. And the same thing is true with other clauses, and this is one of the things that has developed in, in Bible study since the advent of computers, especially in the last 20 years, and that is not just studying words and terms, which has always been a part of of word studies, but to recognize that in many instances, clauses or phrases or idiomatic phrases become uh, greater than the sum of the parts. So you can spend all the time in the world exegeting two words in 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 a clause or phrase, but recognize that the phrase takes on a meaning of its own that is different from just a 
a breakdown of the individual terms that are in there, and that can lead you to, you know, some misapplication and misunderstanding of some, of some passages. So that's all part of this, and I keep going back and reading more and more things and trying to work through different aspects of this to just kind of flesh out some of the problems because there are a lot of problems in understanding these passages, and there's been a lot of steps and missteps. I think there have been people who've been, it's a very emotional subject as to when life actually, full life actually begins. Is it at, at conception? Is it at birth? Is it transmitted uh, physically? Just how does this how does this all work? And I think there are passages that have not been dealt with honestly and openly on both sides of this particular uh, controversy. So last time, in case you weren't here, Last time we started off going back to Genesis 2-7 and just focusing on a few key ideas related to the fact that God formed man and that verb Yatser indicates the fashioning, the forming, the shaping of the, of the external part of man. Now, if I can remember this because I was doing a lot of uh, tangential reading right before I came to class tonight, which did not necessarily make it into my notes, but hopefully it's somehow got engraved for at least 30 minutes on my mental hard drive. I want you to turn to Job chapter 1. No, it's not there. Okay. So we'll pick it up. Uh, I'll I'll grab it some other point as we go through tonight, I'm sure. Uh, Just another statement where Job is talking about how God formed his body and then dressed the... Uh, the, the the muscles and the bones and the sinews, and just just it was just I was just going there for an example of how uh, God shapes the physical body. But he in in that passage it speaks as if God is directly involved, much like the passage we looked at in Psalm 139. And see, we come in and we talk about how God is directly involved in the creation impartation of the soul. But that he is, uh, but that he indirectly or immediately uh, generates the physical body because humans are involved in the, in the act of uh, procreation. But even though God is immediately involved in something, the scriptures still speak as if God is directly doing it because God is the author of both the soul life and the uh, physical life, the development of the body. Uh, within the womb. And that's what Yatser focuses on. God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And I just pointed out last time that God's breathing is anthropomorphic because God doesn't breathe. He doesn't have lungs. But the breath of life in relationship to man was is to be understood literally. And there have been those who want to claim that this breathing of life, the word neshema that is used here, uh, is this is just sort of a one-time pattern, uh, the initial creation of life in the garden. And certainly this is distinctive. The, uh, the, the, Adam doesn't have a circulatory system. He doesn't have any sort of a, a neurological system. He doesn't have any uh, development of musculature going on at all prior to the breathing of God and the impartation of, of, of the soul, which is what happens with the development of biological life, which the development of the body in the womb. There is, it's a progressive thing. It develops. So 
there, there's not a one-to-one correspondence there, and we acknowledge that, and that's true. But this phrase, breath of life and neshema, is used again and again throughout Scripture as being indicative of when life is present. We talked about Genesis 7-2 and Deuteronomy 20, verse 16. Joshua 10:40, Joshua 11:11, and Psalm 150, verse 6, and then we have the phrase "net nefesh hayah," which is one of those clauses that it's not just nefesh, which is sometimes translated soul. It's not that he becomes a living soul. It's not just hayah, but it's the phrase nefesh hayah. Nefesh hayah is used in Genesis 1:20 for birds, in Genesis 1:21 for sea creatures and in, in uh, Genesis one twenty four for animals. So this is not a term or a phrase that is distinctive to a human soul. And so it is more correct to say that this simply means he becomes a living entity. He's alive. He wasn't alive before, but he is, uh, there is, there's life. So that's another difference between the progress of, of biological development uh, the development of the body in the womb, because it is alive as biological life. It is living. There's circulation. There is the development of, of um, uh, neurological pathways. There's response to uh, external stimuli. If you had given any kind of external stimuli to the body of Adam lying there uh, on the ground before God breathed into him, there wouldn't have been any response. It was it was completely inanimate and lifeless. So these are uh, aspects of this that we must uh, take into account. What I pointed out, again, in terms of review, is that the key issues become determining how the Bible expresses uh, the parameters of life. And I had concluded in the lesson before that that the position that I'm articulating is that you don't have full life. I mean, you, you have a progressive development, the progressive development of the uh, body in the womb uh, prior to birth, but it is at birth when the soul is given. That's when you have, have full human life is only at birth, and the parameters in the Scripture are birth and death, as, as, uh, as I pointed out. And so to illustrate that and to show that I'm not making this kind of stuff up out of thin air, see, there's a number of evangelicals who really react to this. But if you, if you go to Judaism, and you go back to the Talmud, you go back to the Mishnah, and I quoted from the Encyclopedia of Judaism, that um, they articulate this same position, that it is not full life and a human life until it's nefesh at birth. And so I'm not going to quote the whole article like I did last week. Just in review... In that article, it states most biblical com- common. Well, that's not the slide I wanted. The commentators explain that the fetus is not considered to be a nefesh or person until it has left the womb and entered the air of the world. One is therefore permitted to destroy it to save the mother's life. That's the only exception, because in in Judaism. In the Talmud and the Mishnah, they understand that what is going on in the womb is human. It is not just a mass of cells. It is not non-human. God is involved in that process and that you don't interfere with it and stop it at all. It may not be murder, but it's just short of murder. And unless you have to make a decision between the life of the mother and the life of the 
uh, infant in the womb, there is no, uh, no, no interference whatsoever, no abortion. This has been the traditional view in Judaism, and it is the, was the view of the early church. And in fact, there were some early church fathers that even went so far as to say it was murder. Now, they hadn't refined the, at that point, that's the early second century, they hadn't refined the distinction between uh, traditionism, Christian, none of those things had been developed. Then I went to a modern anti-abortionist, Harold O.J. Brown, who's a well-known evangelical scholar who's really at the forefront of the whole uh, right to life, the Protestant right to life anti-abortion crusade. And he wrote an article that came out in the early 90s in the Journal for the Evangelical Theological... No, it wasn't. It was in the Trinity Theological Journal at a Trinity Seminary. And he makes some just astounding statements in his in this particular article. One of the statements he made is that the discussion of ensoulment for all practical purposes is necessarily confined to those religious circles, especially but not only Christian ones, who do believe that man has a soul. And he goes on to say that the question of ensoulment cannot be answered scripturally. Now, I think it can be answered scripturally, but he's claiming from his position as an uh, 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 an anti-abortionist as a, as a right to life where he's claiming, hey, we don't know. Well, if you don't know from your study of the Scripture, and I went through all of his uh, academic credentials last year, extremely well-educated, uh, biblically-educated individual, and he's saying, you know, we can't know. Well, if you don't know, how can you base law on something you can't know as a Christian when you have access by the Holy Spirit to the completed canon of Scripture. And if you say you can't know, how can you go out and insist that abortion is murder? Because the presupposition of that is that a soul is there. And he does make a point in discussing uh, this whole issue that he just can't imagine, doesn't get one shred of support for the statement. He says he just can't imagine how any Christian could ever say that, could ever think that the fetus could go a full nine months without ever having a soul. So he just, he, he just presuppositionally rejects the creationist at birth position because he just doesn't think it, it makes any sense whatsoever. So I concluded with him last time by making three points of what he is saying. He said, number one, whatever is in the womb is human. And that's something that is very important. We're going to look at a passage tonight that's, that's very important on this, is that we can't, we can't minimize what is in the womb from conception. Whatever's in the womb is human. That's true. Whether it's ensouled or not, it's human, and it is the development of the physical part of the image and likeness of God. Second statement he made was that Scripture cannot answer the question as to the timing of insolment, and that's false. I think Scripture does make a statement there, and we can understand that. Third, and this was a very good and accurate point that he made, he said that we don't want the government, the Congress, or the courts attempting to decide the time of insolment. They can't do it apart from revelation. So I made a three-point conclusion, and I think this is the core of my, my presentation on this issue, is number one, only Christians have access and can understand the things of the Spirit of God, i.e. Revelation, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. 
If you can only know when the soul is imparted, no matter when it is, if you can only know its timing through revelation, and unbelievers cannot know it because it is revelation, they can't understand the things of the Spirit of God, then you can't base law, law code on information that is not accessible to uh, the unsaved mind. Uh, murder, I mean, you, can, you can build all kinds of ethical systems are developed totally apart from Scripture that recognize that murder is wrong, that recognize the right of private property, recognize the... Uh, uh, you know, that thievery is wrong, all kinds of moral standards. Don't, don't fall into a distorted evangelical uh, distortion uh, that says that only Christians can come up with ethics. Only Christians have a consistent basis for coming up with the ethics they do. But there's a lot of non-biblical systems that come up with high moral standards. Now, they're, they're robbing. They're, they're, they're not consistent. We can point that out. But that doesn't mean that they don't. That doesn't mean that on the basis of reason, on the basis of uh, empiricism, you can't decide, you know, willy-nilly murder just isn't a good thing. That doesn't promote stability in society. So you can, you can come to the certain conclusions about ethics just on the basis of empiricism or rationalism, but you can't determine when the soul... Uh, enters the body on the basis of anything other than revelation. So you don't base law that's for believer and unbeliever on something that is knowable only to the believer. And by the way, believers don't agree at all and have you know, argued this for centuries. So why would you want to ba- base a universal standard on a disputed, a disputed understanding of revelation? Okay, now, as we go through this, whole issue, there are three passages that continuously come up in terms of a question, how can you claim whatever side you're on in light of this particular passage? And the most difficult, one that gives trouble to both sides, and both have to be honest with that, has to do with John the Baptist. And let's face it, there are things about the ministry of John the Baptist that are just a little bit strange. And John is a cousin of Jesus, and he's probably heard the story of what happens in Luke 1, the story of his miraculous birth, the announcement of his birth, the announcement of the birth of his cousin Jesus, and the, the virgin birth, virgin conception and birth of Jesus all of his life. And yet when he gets thrown in jail, he says, he sends a message to Jesus and says, are you really the Messiah? And there's other things about, about John the Baptist that are just a little bit unusual to understand because we, we don't always understand the dynamic that's going on in terms of Old Testament theology. If you don't understand Old Testament theology and the whole issue related to the kingdom, you're going to just fall flat on your face with, with John the Baptist. So let's go to Luke 1. Luke 1. This is, this is the first passage people will go to. And course, first of all, we have to properly uh, translate it. Now, his father is Zacharias, his mother is Elizabeth, and Elizabeth has not been able to get pregnant. She is one of the six women in Scripture that Scripture makes a point out of, their, uh, out of her barrenness. And there is a purpose for that because God is going to make sure that she 
uh, becomes pregnant in miraculous circumstances. Zechariah is his father. He's a priest. It's his turn to uh, serve in the temple. And when he goes in, uh, an angel of the Lord appears to him, verse 11. And when Zechariah sees the angel of the Lord, he gets extremely agitated because he figures that he's going to die. This is it. But the angel said to him in verse 13, Don't be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. We'll come back to this verse in just a minute. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his verse. Now you have, you have a couple of key words there in the Greek that are very important, but the most important is the one that's translated gladness. Because this is a word that from its Old Testament background was always associated with the joy that would come uh, from the presence of the Messiah. When Messiah would appear and bring the kingdom, there would be great exuberant joy and excitement. That's what this word has. Uh, the emphasis is it's not the more mental attitude uh, stability of the first word joy, which is kara. It is a different word that has a... A, a very strong emphasis from the Old Testament. It's the gr- Greek word uh, agaliasis. And so it has this, this nuance. So when you see that word immediately, you should be thinking in terms of the coming of the Messiah, eschatological joy. Remember, we think of eschatology as what's happening you know, in the future, at the rapture, at the second coming. But if you were at the time of John the Baptist and the Messiah hadn't shown up for the first advent yet, when you're thinking eschatology, you're just thinking about the Messiah coming and bringing the kingdom. And remember, the message of John the Baptist was going to be, prepare the way of the Lord for the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand, and, and, and repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus shows up, and the message he starts off with is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he sends out the disciples, and their message is, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It, it was all eschatological. So this word is very important because the angel is telling them that you and Elizabeth are going to have this particular kind of eschatological exuberance. It's going to characterize you and Elizabeth. We'll come back to that in a minute. For in verse 15 he says, He will be great. In the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. Now, wine is what we take of as wine. It's the fruit of the of, of grapes. Strong drink is beer. See, they hadn't. I know some of you are already thinking it's scotch or bourbon, or but see, they hadn't developed the uh, process and the abilities to distill beverages yet. That didn't come along till about the eighth or ninth century A.D. So, strong drink from the Old Testament word. Was referred to barley beer. So he's saying he's not going to drink wine or beer, and he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Now, before we look at this issue of the, the filled with the Holy Spirit, let's stop a minute and look at this initial announcement about his not having, uh, not drinking wine or strong drink. Who does that remind you of? Somebody we studied recently. Who does that remind you of? Samson, yes. So let's go look at Samson for a minute. Now this is a this is going to be a tough passage for some of you. Um, Judges chapter thirteen. 
Judges chapter 13, we have a parallel situation. We have, we have a mother who is barren. We have an announcement of a uh, supernatural conception by the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord, verse 3, appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and born no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Literally, and I made a point out of this, that these are two separate words, two separate actions. Conception is the start of the process when, when fertilization occurs, and giving birth is what happens at the, at the end of the process when the child is, comes out of the womb. Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink, strong drink, and not to eat anything unclean. That's to the mother. Now, the angel of the Lord is not concerned with prenatal health here. This is, has to do with the Nazarite vow that Samson is going to be under. But from the moment of the announcement, the conception is going to occur just momentarily in the next day or two. The mother is not supposed to uh, drink wine or strong drink or to eat anything unclean. Why? Behold, verse 5, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. See, now what we would think is that, well, if that's just biological protoplasm in the womb, and it really doesn't have great significance until there's ensoulment, then why does it matter what she does? It matters because, as I've pointed out, we shouldn't create this dichotomy between the body and the soul, between the material and the immaterial. They are both part of the image of God, and they develop separately. So that this passage is showing that God is very much concerned about what happens to that which is in the womb. And so for the period of her pregnancy, because of who she is going to give birth to, because of Samson's future purpose, she has to indicate the distinctiveness and the uniqueness of his future ministry, and so she too is not supposed to uh, drink wine or beer or eat anything unclean. Verse 5 explains, because he will be a Nazarite uh, from the womb. And so this is iterated there. And the point that I want to make is that this just shows again that we have to take into account the importance of the development of what's going on in the womb. It's not, uh, there's this myth that, well, it's, it's, this is part of the mother's body. It's not part of the mother's body. That's why it has, in many cases, uh, the baby in the womb has a different blood type. You can take a, uh, you can, you can fertilize an egg in a petri dish and implant it in any womb, in any female on the planet. And if it is a white, if they are biological white parents, you can implant that womb in a black woman, and that baby is going to be white. And that baby is going to have the genetic tendencies of the parents, going to look like the biological father and the biological mother, because that entity is a distinct entity. It's mother-dependent in the sense that for life it must get its nourishment through the uh, placenta. But the interesting thing is in, in God's 
uh, creation is that that placenta is going to allow uh, a mother with one blood type to mix her blood and with uh, the fetus who has a different blood type. And that's, uh, you know, the mixing of blood types doesn't occur naturally. So that's just a provision of God. But it shows that what is in the womb is not uh, just a tumor or hangnail or just a mass of cells. It is something that's going to be a full human being and must be treated as sacred life. And that's the Jewish position is life is sacred. Even if it doesn't have the soul yet, it is sacred life. God treats that which is in the womb as that which is very valuable. Okay, so let's go back to Luke one fifteen. Luke one fifteen, we have the next statement. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Now, that's the New King James translation. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, let me go to the next slide here. That word for filling is this word that also shows up in Luke 141, pimplami, which means to cause to be full. It's related to, but it is a distinct word from plerao, and it's, but it's not the same as the, the word that's used in Ephesians 5.18 for the filling of the Spirit. It is a different word. It is uh, pimplami plus a genitive. See, in Ephesians 5.18, when you have the command, be filled by means of the Spirit, that is a command using the verb plerao, different verb, plerao plus a, uh, a dative, which is an instrumental dative, and it should be translated filled by means of the Spirit. And that is a different operation of the Spirit than what we have going on here. This is pimplami plus a genitive. Be filled of or from, literally, of or from uh, the Holy Spirit. And this kind of genitive can often be used for uh, means. And it's the same kind of ministry of the Holy Spirit that you have in the Old Testament with endowment. It is a ministry of God the Holy Spirit, just as you had, but to a greater degree, because remember, John the Baptist was greater than all the Old Testament prophets. He has a greater measure and influence of the Holy Spirit than any of the Old Testament prophets. But it's the same kind of ministry to the leaders, to the, to Othniel, uh, to, excuse me, Bezalel and Aholiab, who crafted the tabernacle, to the judges, to Samson. It's uh, related to his role within the theocratic kingdom of God and the theocratic message that the kingdom is about to come. So it is not related to his spiritual life per se. But the other thing about it is that there's nobody in the Old Testament, no one in the New Testament of whom we have this phrase stated that isn't a regenerate believer a precondition for having the this operation of the Holy Spirit is you have to be regenerate. Well, the way some people want to handle this, and I think there are some translations that will say, um, <clears throat> will translate this next phrase, he will be filled with the Spirit even within his mother's womb. And that's, that's not a good translation. A King James, New King James translates it even from his mother's womb, which is more literal, ek koilia. But the NIV catches the sense of this idiom that it's from birth. Now, the reason I keep belaboring this is because this is really where I think the, the, a lot of the discussion needs to be today, is the Old Testament phrase was mebeten, and the New Testament phrase 
is uh, ek koilea. Now, I'm going to, I've got this slide out of order here. But I was, one of the things I was doing this afternoon is consulting some more technical word study dictionaries on Hebrew that are out and came up with these two statements. The first statement is from the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis. <sighs> long title, long abbreviation. Uh, evangelical in, in its orientation, evangelical scholars. It's edited by William Van Gemeren, who's uh, evangelical. This is not one of the more liberal uh, based dictionaries like the second one is. This is the, um, uh, it came out in the late 90s, published by Zondervan. And in that article, under the heading of Betten, it says, as one of the, uh, when it's discussion of the, the concept of from the, from the womb, the writer states, the beginning of one's life on earth is sometimes viewed as when he comes out of his mother's womb. See, that's what I've been saying. It's birth, it's the beginning of life. Here's an evangelical scholar in a technical Hebrew dictionary admitting that this is the thrust of this particular phrase. It is from birth. Birth is the time of the beginning of life. Then the second quote, see, he quotes, he, he references TDOT, which is the, the Butterwick and Ringgren uh, were the two uh, editors. It's a European production. Uh, the Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament, they've still translated. I bought the first four volumes when I was in seminary, and that was, you know, John the Baptist was a private back then. And um, and they're still translating. I think they came out with volume 14 finally this last year, and they have two more to go. I might get the last two before I die. But in the Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament, volume 2, page 97, they, the writer states, quote, Birth then, being the terminus a quo, that's Latin for the beginning. Birth then, being the beginning in life. See, here you have two different, highly respected uh, Hebrew theological dictionaries, both of which affirm what I've been saying for the last several lessons, is that this phrase, mibetan and ekoilea, is an idiom for from birth. Now, the reason I make that point is that there have been those who have tried to make an issue out of the use of those prepositions, the use of the men and the use of the ek. Some of you have heard that, the emphasis on the partitive use of the men, partitive use of the ek. What I'm saying here, and by taking this back to my introduction, is that this is an idiomatic statement. It's not based on how the preposition is used. In fact, I read one critique of <coughs> that position uh, last week, and what and he went so far in one direction in trying to explain the fact that men and act never can mean uh, have this partitive idea that he completely eviscerated his own understanding of Revelation 3.10 when uh, Jesus says to the church of Philadelphia that I will keep you from the hour of testing. We went through that. That's an indication of the rapture. See, act and men can have several different meanings. And in some contexts, they clearly mean keeping you from something, never having entered into it. And in other passages, it indicates source that it says you came from Philadelphia. Well, that clearly means at some point you were in Philadelphia. So you do have these differences. But if you start parsing 
the grammar in a phrase that's an idiom, you're going to end up just misunderstanding the whole thing. It is an idiomatic phrase because you don't have uh, you don't have the vocabulary to say from birth. There's no noun. I've pointed that out. So I just wanted to give you a little more documentation on what I'm what I've been saying there. Luke one fifteen goes on to say uh, he's also been filled uh, with the Holy Spirit. Uh, even from birth. NIV translates it that way, as it does both of these phrases, echolia and mebet, numerous times. So that's legitimate. It is from birth. Now, I, I'm going to go off the reservation here. I would love to be able to say that, that I've been able to demonstrate that from birth doesn't mean from the instant of birth. My gut feeling is that it's just a general idiom for from an early age, but I can't document that anywhere. The closest I've been able to come is that passage over in Acts we looked at a couple of weeks ago when it talked about the man who was born crippled and he, that he was, he was crippled from birth. That's how the phrase is. Now, how do you, when would you know that he was crippled? Is he going to get up and walk the first day after he's born? Now, unless there's a physical deformity, you wouldn't know that he wasn't going to be able to walk maybe for uh, weeks or months. Now, it's different from the uh, blind man in John chapter 9, verse 1, who's blind from birth. You can figure out a baby's blind probably pretty quickly, but not with the, 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 the crippled man. So that may take some time. So anyway, this I would love to be able to demonstrate this because I have a sense that it's got to be early because my big problem is, and the problem you don't find anybody really wrestling with on the other side of the the question here is how can you have John the Baptist having a relationship with God the Holy Spirit before he's regenerate? How does exactly does that work since you don't have that pattern anywhere else in Scripture? That is a serious problem with anybody claiming that this, especially claiming that this filling takes place in in the womb because as I'm going to point out, when you have this word pimplami, it is almost always followed by some sort of verbal articulation. Almost always by some sort of verbal articulation. For example, we'll get into the, the next passage in Luke 41. Uh, Luke 141, it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. What's the next thing that happens in verse 42? Then she spoke. And you can go through every use of pimplami in the New Testament. And every time the writer says that so-and-so was filled with the Holy Spirit, the next thing is they say something. See, this is different from the sanctification ministry of the filling of the Spirit of Ephesians 5.18. This has to do with revelatory information and direct guidance by God the Holy Spirit. So just exactly how is John the, John the Baptist going to be speaking either in the womb or in the first six or eight or ten months of his life? I'm not sure. I just have a lot of questions on this, and nobody's addressing them, and I don't think we have enough information uh, to address them. Now, the next thing we need to do is go to Luke 141. 
Luke 141, we read, It happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. These are three events that are stated there. She hears the greeting, the baby leaps in her womb. Her explanation in verse 44 indicates that there's a relationship between the two. And then subsequently, or unrelatedly, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And then she says something in verse 42. There are some important observations here. The event is precipitated by Elizabeth hearing the greeting of Mary. It's not the brephos in the womb that hears the greeting. It is Elizabeth that hears the greeting. Second, Elizabeth is subsequently filled by the Holy Spirit, which has to do with what she's going to say in verse 42. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. What she says there is new information for her. Uh, If you go through Luke, Luke chapter 1, you have the initial episode with the announcement to Zacharias about the birth of John the Baptist, and then uh, the conception of Elizabeth and her five months of pregnancy in verse 24. And then in the six months of her pregnancy, she doesn't know this, she's down in Judea. She's, she's 50 miles from Nazareth. And back then they didn't have email, they didn't have text messaging, they didn't have a cell phone, they didn't have telegraph or even Pony Express. So at that time, the angel Gabriel comes and announces to Mary up in Nazareth that Mary is going to conceive and that she is going to give birth to the promised Messiah. And when that is uh, completed, the angel tells her in verse 36, Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for who is called barren, for with God nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. The angel departs. Now Mary arose in those days. She gets up the next morning to go see Elizabeth. Elizabeth does not know that Mary is pregnant. Mary is barely pregnant. She does not know that Mary is pregnant with the Messiah. She has no information that way. So when Mary shows up, Elizabeth's excitement over Mary is her just her normal excitement over seeing her relative. That's it. She's not excited because of messianic implications at that point because she doesn't have a clue. She didn't get the text message. So when Mary enters the house of Zacharias, it happened when Elizabeth hears the greeting of Mary that there is this activity in the womb. Now, let's talk about this activity just a little bit. Let me see if i got some of these other words up here. Okay. The same word is used in verse 44. It's skirtao, which means to leap to spring, especially of animals, to leap for joy or to exult. Now, this is a really interesting word. It's used in the Septuagint for movement in the womb. Can you think of where that might be? Jacob and Esau. Movement in the womb. Skirtao. Okay, it's uh, also used to refer to physical exuberance because you're excited about something. 
Now, as a result of that, it became anthropopathized in classical Greek, if there's such a word. It became an anthropopathic statement that was frequently ascribed to animals. For example, in uh, a writing of Longus, who actually writes in the 2nd century A.D., which is very close to New Testament times, he says the word is used of, the, of a dog leaping for joy after getting the scent of a hare. Now, this is really good. The dog leaps for joy. Does the dog leap for joy because he has emotions like a human and volition, or is this just because this is the instinct that's bred into him? And we are anthropopathically imputing human emotions to this exuberant leaping about. The word is frequently used of the activity of sheep and rams uh, gambling about on the hillside or or young calves leaping about in the fields. And so it has this this figure of speech idea uh, along with it. And so it comes to be an idiom again that is associated with uh, humans leaping for joy. So the babe is leaping in the womb. Now that's that word. We've got to deal with each of these words and then we've got to deal with whether or not we've got a figure of speech going on here. Leaping, the babe leaps, and then we have that next phrase for joy. Now the way that's translated in most English translations makes it look as if, I would expect some different words in, in the Greek actually some different prepositions. But what we have is an in clause. In always indicates something, means usually, ends the preposition. We don't have a hati clause, which would be causal. It doesn't say he leaped in the womb because of joy. Uh, it, it's a preposition in, which could be, uh, one use could be giving a reason for something. In plus the dative can do that. But according to Arnton Gingrich, it also has a sense of explaining the surrounding circumstances. What are the circumstances that are going on around a certain activity? Okay, so you have this this movement of John in the womb. Now, are we going to say on the one hand that at six months you have fetal activity and development to the degree that this fetus hears the sound of, of another person outside of his mother and knows cognitive activity that that is Mary and that she is pregnant. She's not even showing yet. She barely can see and that she's pregnant with the Messiah. Is that what we're saying? See, that is really what the one position is arguing is that John knows that that's Jesus' mommy there, and that Jesus is in her womb. Now, I find that just to be difficult, just from our understanding. Now, you can't hang anything on science, because we're we're always learning new things. But at this stage, uh, we're we're not sure how much cognitive activity is is going on in in the brain, in the womb. Now, there's there's certainly development of the brain. I remember, you do too, back in the 80s and 90s, it was real popular for uh, mothers to try to develop uh, the the brain activity of the 
of the fetus by playing classical music or other kinds of music, and, and mothers would do that. And then studies came out in the late 90s showing that you know, they're just, the connections aren't there for that to have any impact. There's no, there's no memory. There's no, nothing. It, it doesn't do a cotton-picking thing because they're just the, the synopses aren't connecting yet and all of this isn't happening. And it doesn't really happen until uh, five or six weeks after birth. Hmm. So if that's not there until after birth, then how can we be arguing that what John the Baptist is engaged in is a lot of cognitive activity from deep inside his mother's womb? I'm having trouble with this. So maybe there are some other things going on here, and this isn't a passage anybody ought to be going to trying to decide uh, whether or not there's a soul in the womb. What happens is, uh, there is a viable explanation for this, and it seems to fit the text. The text is saying that, that both in verse 41 and 44 is a connection with what happens to the mother. In verse 41, it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary. Who heard the greeting? John? No, he's not even called... You know, here's another interesting thing. There's this, the word brephos is used for infant here. You have a number of different words used for infants and babies and children in Greek. And some people come along and they'll say, see, in Greek, brephos is used of what's in the womb and brephos is used of, of, of the baby. And so the, 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 there's no distinction in the New Testament between what's in the womb and what's out of the womb. That's a Greek word, folks. That didn't come out of a biblical context. That was a Greek's idea. And they, they didn't believe that you had full human life inside the womb at all. I mean, they were pagan. Now, let's not go there. That's just that that argument isn't gonna going to work at all. So we have to be careful, and and that's one thing I've discovered in reading this is on both sides there's a lot of unguarded statements, there's a lot of hyperbolic statements, and there's a lot of statements made that just aren't in evidence. As I pointed out last time in Job three, uh, Job three three. Uh, just because it says on the night I was con- the male child was conceived, and people say, "Ah, see, life begins at conception." No, that just says that at conception you can tell the difference between uh, between whether it's uh, a girl or a boy. That's physical. That doesn't tell you there's a soul there. It doesn't tell you that life begins there. We read into these verses uh, too often what we what we want to see in the verse. So you have skirtao leaping. Uh, in relation to joy. Whose joy? I think it's the mother's joy because we've already been told back in Luke chapter 1, verse 14, that she's going to have this kind of joy because it is related to the eschatological joy of the Messiah. So her joy, her excitement at hearing Mary come, even though she doesn't know Anything about Mary being pregnant or the Messiah, uh, she's just excited, and that creates uh, an environment that causes uh, fetal stimulation. Now, this is we we can document this possibly. I'm not going to say this is the only explanation for fetal movement. There's all kinds of reasons babies are going to move, but it's been demonstrated that there is one kind of reflex called the startle reflex or moral reflex that is one of many biological and neuromuscular responses in a fetus. 
And there was a study done at USC a number of years ago and where they, would, they took an artificial larynx and put it up next to the uh, mother's abdomen to create a, a three-second sound. And in every case, there was a physical reaction by <coughs> the fetus. Now, that doesn't mean there's a soul there. It doesn't mean it's volitional, just like hitting your leg with a, just below the knee with a hammer. Your, your leg's going to jerk. It is just a reflex action. It doesn't indicate volition. It doesn't indicate anything other than just response to sound. So this is a possible explanation of what's going on here. The timing, of course, is supernatural. And because, because what God is indicating is this movement to gain Elizabeth's attention, to make her realize, because this movement was more than probably typical fetal movement. It really got her attention, and, and then she's filled with the Spirit, and she recognizes that there's something, uh, something that's happened to Mary that is beyond her, beyond her knowledge. Now, that deals with Luke 1 and in both of those instances. I, there's a lot that's going on in that particular passage, and I'm not sure that we understand all of it, but I think it's a very weak passage to go to because if you've got John the Baptist engaged in all this cognitive activity uh, inside the womb, then you've got some other problems with him being filled with the Spirit and not being regenerate. So there are some various various problems there. One last statement. I mentioned brephos. Brephos... Is, the term brephos is used to refer to Jesus and John until they're taken to the temple on the eighth day, dedicated, and then he is called John. He is not called John. In, 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 the, um, in the start of this, the angel tells Zechariah, you're going to call him, you're going to call him John. But he doesn't start calling him John until he's dedicated on that eighth day. He is still referred to as a brephos. That is significant. He is not personalized with a personal name until he gets presented to the Lord on the eighth day of dedication, which is when he's no longer referred to uh, as, as a brephos. So that would indicate under, uh, under a Jewish concept that he is fully recognized as a person within the context of the covenant at that time of his circumcision on the eighth day and not before. So there's another indication that there's, there's a distinction there. Well, that ought to cover most of what we've gone into in Luke 1. The other passage that's a difficult passage that people get into is in Exodus 21-22, which we'll come back to next time. This is the episode... And within the law when men are fighting and there's a pregnant woman nearby and she gets uh, inadvertently hit and gives birth uh, prematurely. So we have to look at that in some detail and then when we finish that we will start wrapping this up and go to another level of the discussion because you see the next level of discussion is once you decide when the soul enters into the body then you have to figure out uh, the transmission of sin and what our relationship with Adam is. Is it seminal or is it, is it seminal or is it federal? 
And this brings in a whole other... And these two issues of the, whether the soul is created at, at birth or passed on uh, through procreation are directly related to how theologians understand our relationship to Adam in terms of federal headship or seminalism. And once again, one of the key passages is, is our passage in, in Hebrews 7, 8, 9. So we have to understand this because this is crucial to just understand our whole relationship to Adam and the transmission of sin. So we will get into that and probably not get it all done before I head off to Israel. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to get into your word. And even though things may not always be as clear to us as we study these things, we know that through perseverance and diligence we'll come to a clear understanding of what your word teaches. That even if things are difficult, we recognize that that your word is is, uh, very clear and that your concern for human life is uh, very important and that whatever is going on inside the womb is sanctified life because it is part of what is developing into the image and likeness, into your image and likeness in us. We pray that you would help us to think these things through clearly and see how they apply in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.